Well, I guess everything is not well on Team Canada. Premier Scott Moe out of Saskatchewan put out a pretty, I don't know if I'd say it's a terse statement on Twitter regarding Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's visit to a Saskatchewan rare earths processing plant. Hello and welcome everyone to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. We have a fabulous show here for you today. Jeffrey Christian chimes in on what is happening in the gold market. It is a sober assessment. And that is why we love to have Jeffrey Christian on. And we're very grateful that he comes on on a fairly regular basis here. I tend to ask him quarterly. And so it is always appreciated because it's actually pretty pretty bang on and the insights are one of a kind. Now back to this Scott Moe, Premier Scott Moe. And of course, I come from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. I was just there actually about a month ago in the minus, it was minus 40. But you know what was great about it? Just a quick aside was it was sunny and minus 40 and the wind wasn't insane. It was actually quite beautiful. With the snow, it was, it really brought me back to my youth and it was just very bright outside. And there is something to be said for having a lot of light. It does, you know, raise the spirit despite the frigid temperatures. So back to Scott Moe here. I'm going to read you the statement here because a lot of what's going on in the resource industry is very much a result of politics and policy and all those things. I mean, I don't think we would see a rare earths processing plant in Saskatchewan were it not, you know, designated as important. Had there not been a push that we need these critical minerals to be produced out of Canada and not out of China. I don't think we would have that without that kind of political push. So this is why I go a touch into the politics here, and I'm not here to take a side, but really to just actually illustrate what's happening here as news people should. Now, here is the statement from Premier Scott Moe. The title is, The Prime Minister's Visit to Saskatchewan Today to Tour a Rare Earth Elements Processing Plant is Disappointing but Not Surprising. It's disappointing because this is an area that the provincial and federal government see eye to eye on, yet we were not aware of the Prime Minister's visit. Saskatchewan has been advocating for increased investment in this area, and we hope that the Prime Minister will have positive news today and into the future on our application before Natural Resources Canada. It's not surprising as I led a Saskatchewan delegation in Washington, D.C. last month, where I met with various levels of President Biden's administration and discussed the opportunities Saskatchewan has to partner with the USA on providing the elements required for North American energy security. It's also not surprising that one of the Prime Minister's first visits following his meeting with the American and Mexican presidents is to a Saskatchewan facility, as our province is a global leader in critical minerals and rare earth elements. I mean, As far as I understand, I mean, I'm from Saskatoon. I think it's all because of this facility that it is now, at least according to Premier Scott Moe, a global leader. So in a sense, like the politics are totally secondary here for me. Uh, It does seem unfortunate that they're not Team Canada and that they're, you know, in a sense, it's disappointing for all of us that you guys can't get along and that things aren't better. But I think the more important thing here, as far as we're concerned... I mean, politics will be politics. The more important thing as far as we're concerned is look at the importance that is being placed on critical materials and critical elements, particularly rare earths. And we kind of knew that from, you know, news stories and, you know, various other, you know, just reading the tea leaves here. 
But there is nothing quite like this kind of information from the premier saying, you know, I was just in Washington, you know, Premier Scott Moe. I was met with various levels of President Biden's administration. You know, like this is important to state the obvious, but sometimes the obvious is good to state. And the prime minister, according to Premier Scott Moe, has just met with American and Mexican presidents. And as he was saying, one of his first visits was to this facility. So pretty interesting, isn't it? I guess the takeaway for me and why I read this to you is it just goes to show how important this is. And again, like I'm, I kind of feel like there was a G7 meeting or maybe it was a G20. Something happened about like three or four months ago. And that's when you started hearing about France, you know, finding lithium and just, you know, there seemed to have been at some one of these G7, G20 meetings, it seems to me that there was a real sense of, as they would say, as is said, you know, a come to Jesus moment. There was a a sense of, okay, like this is real and we have to deal with this. In a sense, you know, perhaps ironically, after reading a statement like this, it kind of gives you a little bit of hope that actually the West can, that these governments can actually figure stuff out and that they understand the nature of the problem and they're actually working to address it. So perhaps bizarrely, uh, grounds for optimism. <laughs> but maybe my, but maybe the bar is so low that uh, just simply doing common sense is considered a huge victory over here. Anyways, on and on I could go. So that's happening. So, I mean, again, because it's so crucial, the political dynamics that are going on within the natural resource industries. As I've been saying here, I mean, it's always kind of been at the center of the story of the geopolitical story resources. And it's only in the last, you know, 20, 30 years that we had, or maybe even 70 years, maybe since World War II, that we've kind of drifted off into thinking that, you know, mining and, and resources maybe aren't that important. But it does seem to be reasserting itself as reality does, as hard, cold, physical reality does. And that's very much what this mining industry is about. So that is happening. Now, just on this rare earths front, I thought I would just touch on this other story. Europe's largest rare earths deposit found in Sweden. And it's funny, Peter Zion, who a lot of you know from YouTube and the internet, he's a geopolitical commentator. I think he used to work for Stratfor. I'm not positive on that. One of those geopolitical outfits he was sort of downplaying this and he was saying, you know, it's not a big deal that they found the largest rare earths deposit in Europe. Rare earths are everywhere. It's more about the processing. And he may have a point. So let's just take a quick look at this story, though, since we're on the topic by Cecilia Jamasmi at northernminer.com. Swedish state-owned mining company LKAB said it has found Europe's largest known deposit of rare earths close to Kiruna, the country's northernmost town. The Per Gager deposit just north of the company's largest iron ore mine in the Swedish Arctic, is estimated to contain more than 1 million tons of rare earths, LKAB said in a news release on Thursday. The full extent of the deposit is not known as work is still in an exploratory phase, the miner noted. And we have a quote from CEO Jan Mostrom. It will be at least 10 to 15 years before we can actually begin mining and deliver raw materials to the market. So, yeah, and maybe that is even a bigger factor than anything. 10 to 15 years is a long time. 
Anyways, just some interesting developments over there. Let's take a quick look at the markets. I mean, gold has had quite a run here, and I asked Jeffrey Christian about his take on it, even short term, which I generally don't like to do. I'd, I'm not really into asking people who have spent their whole careers in the gold industry like Jeffrey Christian to gaze into a crystal ball. I mean, that's ultimately what you're doing when you're asking for an outlook, from my perspective, at least. But nevertheless, I did ask him, you know, where do you see things going? How does this seem like, does this rally have legs? And so you will get an answer. And what was interesting, I mean, we never really planned it this way, but we went into China a little bit at the start of the conversation. And actually, I'm really glad we did because China is a pretty topical subject in the gold narrative. I mean, a lot of people think China is stacking gold and is preparing for alternate U.S. dollar situation, whatever, pick your narrative. But there is a sense that China is stacking up gold. Some people say, like Paul from the Sirius Report or Alistair McLeod, say that there's way more gold in China than is being reported. So anyways, I asked Jeffrey Christian about his take on China's role in the whole gold narrative and how he sees things. And of course, we get a very sober, informed view, which is why we love to have him on the program. So a wonderful interview coming up there. And finally, before we go to the news, AME Roundup 2023 occurs on January 23rd to 26th. You still have time to register. And that first day on the Sunday, I believe, there's a time when you can bring your kids in. So actually a pretty fun thing for families to do on Sunday morning, I believe. Just go to roundup.amebc.ca. And we also have a global mining symposium coming up. So get ready for that. That's at events.northernminer.com. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, metal prices could spike with markets so tight. Trafigura says, this is Bloomberg News via mining.com. Geopolitical shocks could trigger a surge in metal prices because the market has never been tighter. According to Trafigura Group, wow, never been tighter, quote, we could be pushed into extreme price levels, end quote. Jeremy Ware, the commodity trader's chief executive officer, said at a mining conference in Saudi Arabia, quote, we need to address this problem now. We are at a pretty critical stage, end quote. His comments come as mining executives warn that much more investment is needed to ensure the world has enough supplies of energy transition metals in the next decade. Copper, a key industrial metal, rose to $9,000 a ton on Wednesday for the first time since June. Minerals such as copper, cobalt, and nickel are crucial for electric vehicle batteries, wind turbines, and solar farms. Supply will have to rise hugely to meet demand, Dominic Barton, chair of Rio Tinto, said at the same conference. We don't have enough projects going on to get close to meeting that gap, Barton said. I worry about short-termism in an industry that's long-term. And the story continues, part of the problem is that mining is seen as a dirty industry, even though it's crucial to slowing climate change, Barton added. Quote, we need these minerals, but the image, it's a Stone Age image. Wow, so that is quite the article there. And turning to more from the Saudi conference here, we have a story 
By the northern miners Colin McClellan in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, Barrick looks to Saudi Arabia, Pakistan for growth. Exclusive interview with Mark Brissot. And it says here, managing risk while war rages in Europe, inflation stings and recession looms is a long-term task best tackled by improving education and living standards in developing nations, Barrick Gold Chief Mark Brissot says. Quote, historically, the mining industry has often invested not to make money for its in-country stakeholders, and that game is over. Quote, the critical thing we've got to understand as miners is we're actually managing a national asset. That's the mine. So stakeholders should benefit. And you got to give Brissot credit that he was able to turn things around in Papua New Guinea and also in Pakistan. So, you know, this sharing the wealth has really been working here. So scrolling down a bit, separatists in Pakistan's southwestern Balochistan province have killed Chinese national workers in the mining industry there and threatened Barak. Barak, speaking on the sidelines of the three-day Future Minerals Forum, said Barak would press ahead in Pakistan, noting the provincial government is a 25% partner in the project. Quote, we're not investing in those separatist people. We're investing in the people of Balochistan. We will really unlock that endowment that the Balochistan people always point to but are frustrated that it's never been able to participate in. So it's an ongoing theme that the mining industry has to go to more remote and frankly more dangerous places in order to get the metal the world needs. He also, scrolling down a bit, and I highly recommend you read the in-depth report, and there's even video, and I mean, Saudi Arabia, it's just fascinating just to see the amount of wealth (laughs) that this building, that the Future Minerals Forum is in. Uh, It's a beautiful building here from just what I see of the screenshot in the video. Just one more quote here. Everyone's focused on emissions and carbon reduction, but what about the poor people in this world? We have a responsibility, and with that, we also come with uplifting people, improving education. So it's a super interesting interview. Just go to northernminer.com, and you can read the whole thing. Now, we had an aluminum smelter last week in Australia shut down because of natural gas not being able to flow to it, something wrong with a refinery of some sort. Now, this week, modern aluminum smelter cuts production on operating issues. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. Saudi Arabian mining company reduced production at the aluminum smelter it owns with Alcoa after experiencing operational problems, but is now ramping output back up, according to the company's chief executive officer. So this does look like it was temporary. Madden, as the Gulf's largest mining company is known, took some of its pot lines offline as it encountered quality control issues and looked to stabilize the plant. CEO Robert Wilt said in an interview in Riyadh Wednesday, he referred to high anode effects, which can lower the grade of aluminum by inserting unwanted purities. And so anyways, just a slowdown, I guess, in Saudi Arabia. Goldman Sachs raises aluminum forecasts on higher Chinese and European demand. Also Bloomberg News via mining.com. Goldman Sachs Group raised its price forecasts for aluminum, saying higher demand in Europe and China could lead to supply shortages. Are you seeing a pattern here? The metal, which will probably average $3,125 a ton this year in London, analysts including Nicholas Snowden and Aditi Rai said in a note to clients that aluminum will probably average $3,125 a ton this year. That's up from the current price of $2,595 and compares with the bank's previous forecast of 2563 So you see a surprise on the upside here. And especially as China opens up, And the supply shortage, I mean, it's looking like a perfect storm, isn't it? 
Goldman sees the metal used to make everything from beer cans to plane parts climbing to $3,750 a ton in the next 12 months. So from $2,595, they see it hitting a high of $3,750 a ton. That sounds pretty serious for a metal like aluminum. And we have a quote from the analysts. Quote, with visible global inventories standing at just 1.4 million tons, down 900,000 tons from a year ago, and now the lowest since 2002, the return of an aggregate deficit will quickly trigger scarcity concerns. Set against a far more benign macro environment with fading dollar headwinds and a slowing Fed hiking cycle, we expect upside price momentum to build progressively into spring. So, very interesting. Rio Tinto sees increased volatility as China reopens. This is Reuters via mining.com. Rio Tinto on Tuesday said that China's reopening from COVID-19 restrictions is set to raise near-term risks of labor and supply chain shortages, as it also flagged a strong start to iron ore shipments for 2023. The Anglo-Australian miners said that consumers remain cautious of China's property market, which has been supportive to the economy, and that slowing global demand poses some risk to its exports. And we have a quote from Glenn Lawcock of Barenjoy in Sydney. Quote, results are broadly in line. It's good to see that they made their iron ore guidance. Rio has also noted that system inventories are healthy. That puts them on track for a good start to 2023. So more worry of supply constraints. And also with Rio Tinto, uh, Excelsior is going to test Rio Tinto's Newton Copper Tech in Arizona. This is the new copper heap leaching technology that extracts far more copper. This is by Jackson Chen at the Northern Miner. Excelsior Mining has entered into a collaboration with Newton, a Rio Tinto venture, to evaluate the use of its Newton copper heap leach technologies at Excelsior's Johnson Camp in Arizona. Excelsior believes Newton's proprietary technologies offer the potential to produce more copper in a cost-effective manner while producing less waste from new and ongoing operations. So you can read the whole story on northernminer.com, but that is a fascinating one to follow. The Canadian federal government has approved the James Bay Lithium Project in Quebec, and that is by Bruno Venditti, also at northernminer.com. It says here the federal government said on Monday it approved Galaxy Resources James Bay Lithium Project in Quebec. And we have a quote from Jonathan Wilkinson, Canada's Minister of Natural Resources. And he said, quote, this is an important decision for Canada. The James Bay Lithium Mine Project will produce a key ingredient of clean technology like electric vehicle batteries and solar panels. So mining just playing center stage here in world politics. And another shortage story, Bloomberg News via mining.com. Lithium's next big risk is grand supply plans falling short. Electric vehicle makers are hoping that an imminent wave of lithium supply will bring relief for their expansion plans after a two-year squeeze, but the battery metal diehard bulls warn of more pain to come if producers fail to deliver. It sounds like, you know, a heating economy could be very damaging to the economy in the medium term because there doesn't seem to be enough metal, judging from all these stories. Rampant lithium demand has caught many forecasters by surprise, with booming global EV sales causing consumption to double over the past two years. With suppliers unable to keep pace, a blistering price rally set the total spot value of lithium consumption rocketing to about $35 billion in 2022, up from $3 billion in 2020, according to Bloomberg calculations. So huge increase in demand for lithium. And we have a quote from Claire Blancheland, a lithium trader at Trafigura Group, 
who said by phone from Geneva, quote, I really don't think there's any reason to believe that so many tons can magically appear this year to return the market to balance. The pain is not over yet. So those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, let's just take a quick look at the 10-year bond, which is now yielding. The U.S. 10-year bond is now yielding 3.546%. This is 0.04% lower than last week, so continues to stay fairly low relative to the last three or four weeks here, although basically where it was about five or six weeks ago. So I guess we could say that's in the lower part of its range. Turning to metals, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on January 17th, gold is trading at $1,912.36 per ounce. That is $39 higher than last week. Silver is trading at $24.08 per ounce. That is $0.58 higher than last week. Platinum is trading at $1,064.47 per ounce. That is... $18 lower than last week, and palladium is trading at $1,751.49 per ounce. That is $43 lower than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $4.13 a pound. That is $0.44 higher than last week. Aluminum is $0.12 higher at $1.14 per pound. Lead is a penny lower at a dollar even per pound. Nickel is down 13 cents at $12.33 per pound. Tin is trading $1.49 higher at $12.94 per pound. Cobalt is trading lower at $21.92 per pound. That is 45 cents lower than last week. And zinc is trading 14 cents higher at $1.50 per pound. Zooming out. Precious metals look strong, gold above $1,900, silver above 24 while certain industrial metals like copper, aluminum, tin, nickel, and zinc are also looking strong. So it kind of speaks to those stories we were seeing earlier from Trafigura and Glencore. And those are your metal prices. I'm pleased to join Jeffrey Christian, managing partner of CPM Group, once again in a wonderful interview on what is going on in the gold market. There has been a lot of action in the last six weeks or so. So we got the latest from Jeffrey on what's going on. And also some interesting questions are answered on China and what's going on over there as a lot of people think China's stockpiling gold. Are they? Well, you can find out what Jeffrey Christian has to say. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. Joining me today, I'm very pleased to welcome back Jeffrey Christian, managing partner of CPM Group, back to the Northern Miner podcast. He's given many president calls in the past, and we're very glad that he is here once again. Jeffrey Welcome back. It's good to be back and, you know, best wishes for 2023. 
I was thinking the same thing. I was going to say Happy New Year, but then I thought, well, it's January 17th. It's getting a little <laughs> late for that. So best wishes for the new year. Exactly. So it's been an exciting time in gold. It's not always exciting. From your perspective, what are you seeing that's interesting right now? I mean, there's a lot of talk right now. What's going on in your mind? What are you thinking about? My mind is being pulled in a thousand directions. And I think that that's sort of the nature of the gold market. And it, it, it talks about the direction of what's happening and what's happening, not only in gold, but across commodities, really, but, you know, especially gold and silver. There's a lot of things in transition right now, economically, politically, financially, in terms of the fundamentals of the markets and stuff. So, you know, when somebody says, what do you... Yeah, you know, what do you see as the most important factor? I really don't know because there are so many important factors that are affecting the way investors look at the gold market and consequently the prices of gold. Interesting. So are you saying then that you see more factors than usual at work for, I don't know, geopolitical reasons, central banking reasons, or is it just the same amount of factors and it's always kind of complicated? You know, we have this system that we use, you know, with uh, red, yellow, and green uh, indica you know, indicators for the importance of individual factors on the gold price. And they're kind of all flashing green right now. So, you know, those factors are always there. Currency markets, the dollar, central bank policies in gold, central bank practices in gold as opposed to policies. I think that all of those factors are always there, but right now a lot of them are in transition to something else and, and they're in motion and that makes them much more critical to the price formation process. In addition to that, I think the gold market is going through uh, one of its periodic episodes of introspection where they start saying, you know, we really don't, mining companies, refiners, processors, marketeers, we really don't understand this gold market. And the data that we're using may not actually be accurate. And so there's a lot of introspection just as you're going into the trenches. <laughs> it's sort of like you get into the trench to start the war and then you say, Maybe we should have a battle plan. Fascinating. So you're saying even the insiders, like mining companies or miners, for example, mm -hmm. might not really understand or be uncertain, shall we say, to be speak more carefully, about what's the nature of the market right now. Exactly. I mean, we field a lot of very fundamental questions from mining executives and institutional investment portfolio managers, you know, things that we take for granted because we study it all the time. And we're often surprised at the extent to which managers across the market really are not fully educated on the gold market. And I, I'll interject something here. In China, if you're involved in the gold market in any capacity, you have to go through, you take courses, you study the markets, you take tests, you're responsible for knowing everything from like ore grades and mining reserves and resources and mining and beneficiation and fabrication and investment. You, you have to know all about that stuff and pass a test or tests about it to be in the gold business. 
that's the only place in the world I've ever seen that. And what do you attribute that to? I guess it's just cultural factors, or do they have a certain predisposition towards gold? No, it's a it's a communist system. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, it's a communist system. And and you know, I think the Communist Party of China has one overruling thing. And you know, not to pick on them because it's the same overruling guideline that we, we see in the US Congress, which is let us stay in power. And there's a perception in the United States and to a lesser extent in Europe, there's this whole idea of creative destruction that, you know, to have a vibrant economy, you got to let some people fail. And in China, there's an overriding view that we really have to avoid failures because any failure could be compounded by subsequent failures elsewhere. So they're much more cautious. And that's why, you know, you've seen their gold market reforms uh, have spanned 42 years and growing. You know? But it's not just gold, it's everything that they do. They're much more cautious because the risks of failure are so great for the, for the party. Since we're on the topic of China, I mean, I think the general sense out there is that China is accumulating gold and that they're doing it on a relatively aggressive level, maybe compared to maybe previous years. Since we're talking about China, I mean, do you see anything out of the ordinary from your perspective, or are you simply seeing what you might call normal behavior slightly accelerated? I think in terms of the Chinese government and the People's Bank of China and the China Investment Corp's gold policies, it's it, they're not that aggressive right now. In fact, they've been very unaggressive over the last several years in terms of their gold. And I don't see necessarily anything out of the ordinary there. What I do see is extraordinary talk about China, you know, hypothesizing about what China is doing outside of China, you know, among gold promoters and the gold industry. There's a tremendous amount of misinformation and bad data and bad information about what the Chinese central bank and government and Communist Party are thinking about gold and doing about gold. And that's swirling around the market. And the Chinese have just sort of, you know, the Chinese are just sort of looking and saying, like, we're getting blamed for a lot of things that we're not doing. Interesting. Yeah, because I think there's kind of a, you know, a, what you might call a popular narrative. And it, I mean, it's probably classic gold bug narrative of, you know, that China is selling, you know, treasury bonds and accumulating gold. And I mean, that's kind of like the nature of what you're talking about, I suppose. Yeah. You know, I mean, there was somebody who said, oh, well, China or somebody, I won't say who, but, you know, uh, everybody assumed they were talking about China has bought like 10 million ounces of gold on the QT and they haven't reported it to the IMF. And China actually had bought a million ounces of gold, and it hadn't reported it to the IMF because it hadn't added it to its monetary reserves. You know, so you've got this tenfold multiplication of what's going on. But in addition to that, people don't understand. The People's Bank of China, act, you know, until 2000, 2001, it was the market maker in China. If you bought or sold gold or silver within China, you were buying and selling through an agent of the People's Bank of China to the People's Bank of China. 
Now in 2000, 2001, they moved away from that, having started planning to do that in 1981. So after two decades of planning, they actually moved away from being the market maker, the national market maker. And again, it's not just China. I mean, the Philippines do that. Other central banks around the world do that. You know, the South African Reserve Bank used to do that. I don't know if it still does. So it's nothing unusual in China that the central bank is the national market maker. But they moved away from that. However, because they had that position from 1949 until 2000, they have a team of people who know how to trade gold. So other groups within the Chinese government, the China Investment Corp, which was authorized to start trading in December of 2007, and private entities, smelters, refineries, jewelers, investment companies, will use the People's Bank of China at times to buy and sell gold. And the People's Bank of China has this, they have their monetary reserves, which are what they own. And then they have this separate bucket, which is their trading inventory, because they do this work for other companies. So you will see times like, for example, there was a time when the CIC was buying a lot of gold, but it wasn't buying gold. The People's Bank of China was buying it for them. And the people say, oh, well, you know, the, chief people, uh, the People's Bank of China is buying all this gold. They must be planning to go to a gold standard, which right. they're not. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then after several years, CIC sold that gold and they sold it to the people. You know, they went to the People's Bank of China and said, we want to sell a lot of gold. And I think it was about 14 million ounces. And the People's Bank of China at that point, this was after the U.S. Treasury basically screwed over everyone in 2008, except the major banks in the United States, right? It poured a trillion dollars in to shoring up the banks and let everybody else suffer, including the People's Bank of China. People's Bank of China and the Chinese government at that point said, you know what? Let's add that gold to our reserves, our monetary reserves, right? But you'll see the People's Bank of China buying and selling gold and people say, oh, well, you know, they're buying a lot of gold. They're being very aggressive. But it's possibly not even for them. It's for jewelry manufacturers. <laughs> it's for companies that are selling gold to investors within China. And there are these nuances as to how the gold market works that people who hold themselves out to be experts in gold simply don't know. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense what you're saying. I mean, when I kind of parse it out, it sounds like, in a sense, what you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, it's that it, things are being overstated because, I mean, if we look at 2008, 2009, if they start to say, oh, we're going to make this gold a part of our reserves, it does show a direction towards right. wanting to have more gold. Right. But, but people run away with something like that and it gets overstated and exaggerated. Is that fair? Yeah. And, and let me be very clear. The People's Bank of China from 1949 until about 2014 said, we don't see gold as having a major monetary role. We see gold as having a minor role as a monetary reserve asset. And that was the position of the Communist Party, the government of China and the People's Bank of China until 2009, 2010. And when they saw what the Treasury did in 2008, and they saw what the U.S. government was doing in general 
vis-a-vis -vis its relationships with China, shifting from, hey, let's be partners going forward to being, hey, you're going to be our adversary. The Chinese government starts shifting its policies. So it was the Chinese government that said, hey, that gold that you've been buying for the CIC, add it to your monetary reserves in 2009. Send a message to the U.S. Treasury that there are alternatives to the dollar. You can't replace the treasuries and, and currencies that you have with gold because there's not enough gold to replace all those treasuries that you have. And by the way, Chinese government is like the fourth largest government holder of U.S. treasuries after the Dutch, the British, and somebody else. And the bulk of overseas holdings of U.S. treasuries are not held by central banks. They're primarily, a, a big chunk of it is held by U.S. citizens, corporations, and pension funds offshore to avoid taxes, right? So it's not that the People's Bank said, okay, in 2009, the government said to the People's Bank, let us add that gold to a monetary reserve. And the People's Bank said, we don't see gold as being a significant monetary reserve asset. And the government said, we want to send a message to the Treasury. So they added a big chunk. And then around 2014, there was another big chunk that they were moving for somebody else, and they decided to add it. And at that time, they came out with a whole raft of foreign exchange policies. They widened the, the daily trading ban that they would allow in the yuan. They, they accelerated the move to making the yuan more available for overseas bonds. And, and they also said, we're adding a whole bunch of gold that we've accumulated over the last four or five years to our monetary reserves. They haven't been monetary reserves. They've been in this special bucket because we weren't sure what we were going to do with it. But now we're adding them to our monetary reserves. We're going to continue to buy almost exclusively within the domestic market, and we're going to report on a monthly basis. And for all intents and purposes, up until recently, that's what they were doing. You know, and it was only recently, I think November or December, when they said, oh, we were adding a million ounces of gold to our monetary reserves. And this isn't gold that we bought this month. This is gold that we had bought earlier. So what that was, was that was that gold that was in that trading bucket and for whatever reason, they said, A, maybe private counterparts don't want it, and B, we'll take it. Because if you look at it, that was at a time when the gold price had gone from $2,000 at the beginning of 2022 to $1,700 in, in October and early November. And a lot of people were saying, boy, I really don't want this gold. And the People's Bank said, buy low, sell high. Okay, I'll take it. And again, it was 1 million ounces, not 10 million ounces. Interesting. Well, this is very helpful. So I want to get you on the current situation as far as the gold price in general, and maybe China factors back into that. I, I mean, I, I could ask you a million questions on China. But right now, I mean, you know, according to FT and others, the reason why we're seeing a bit of a increase in the gold price right now, it is buoyant is because of a perception that the Fed will be slowing its interest rate hikes in the coming months. What do you make of the price action? What do you make of the this Fed argument and everything around it? Well, okay, first off, you've got what's really happening with Fed policy and interest rates. And the Fed has indicated that they 
you know, they have made the bulk of their interest rate hikes and they might make another 75 basis point increases. The market's saying, well, they're probably only going to make 50 basis points. But the Fed has indicated clearly that they have a little bit more that they want to increase interest rates over the next three months, two and a half months now, but that the bulk of their increases have been in there. So that's the, the real Fed policy. And it seems most likely, yes, they'll raise 50 to 75 basis points over the first quarter, probably plateau. And then if you start seeing real economic weakness reviving in the fourth quarter, they might start lowering interest rates 25 bips or half a percentage or something like that. So that's the actual interest rate arc. That is a reasonable expectation. But then you have the market expectations. And one of the things I think that you're seeing in the gold market which is, again, something we were saying for a year, the Fed increased interest rates from 25 basis points for the Fed fund rates to about, what, 4.75, 4.5 now. And we were saying, look, they are going to raise interest rates. But at 4.5 or even at 5, nominal interest rates are at like the low end of what they were prior to 2000, 2008. <laughs> yeah. So the Fed can raise interest rates as it has, and not necessarily upset the apple cart, right? And so I think one of the things that you're seeing right now is financial markets are reevaluating their fear of higher interest rates. And they're saying, okay, you know, we've seen the bulk of the interest rate increase already in the market. It hasn't been too devastating to the economy. In fact, we've had a couple pretty strong quarters in the United States and Europe and Japan were doing better than we thought in the second half of 2022. So maybe interest rates aren't so fearful. There are other issues like inflation, fiscal policies, not just in the United States, but around the world, rising private sector as well as sovereign debt. You know, there are all kinds of other issues that are out there. And then, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, potential changes within the European Union structure. You know, there are all kinds of other things that are, again, in transition that are probably also affecting things. So I think what you're seeing is a lot of investors saying, okay, we saw gold prices fall $300 plus last year from their intraday peak in the first quarter to their intraday low in the third, fourth quarter. And even so, gold prices were at a record level in terms of annual average. You know, $1,804, that was the highest annual average gold price ever. <laughs> and, and so I think a lot of people are saying, wait a second, I've got a market that last year saw flat gold prices year end 2021 to the year end 2022, record gold prices on an annual average basis, uh, higher silver prices uh, point to point year end to year end, and negative 11% to negative 22% in other financial assets, stocks, bonds, real estate. Yeah. So, yeah, those people who had diversified into gold and silver have done better than those people who didn't. And a lot of these people get judged and graded and survive or, or don't survive on a quarterly return basis. So they're saying, okay, my peers who were in gold, even if they only had 5 or 10% of their assets in gold and gold assets, have outperformed me last year. What am I going to do this year? Well, that's exactly the sense I get. It's sort of like last year, 
it was a decent trade, so why not stick with a good thing? Yeah. Or if I wasn't involved in that good trade last year, maybe it's time to get in. And so do you think this whole move and, you know, and I don't expect you in a sense to know the answer to this question, but more just a sense of how you see things. Do you think this move has legs in the sense or do you kind of expect it to come back or is that just a nonsensical question Look, asking what a fortune cookie might say? Yeah, you know, I'll be the economist and say yes. <laughs> Our view is that the gold price has, has moved up very sharply since early November. On a sh very short-term basis, it could have some profit-taking, and it's off $10 from yesterday as we speak today, but that's kind of meaningless. Our expectation is that the gold price, you know, we've covered from below 1700 to above 1900 We think that we'll consolidate maybe above 1880, maybe above 1840 over the next eight months. Uh, but the market, I think, is setting itself up. It's relatively tight. And you do have a lot of inert investor interest, right? So there's a lot of people looking at gold saying, should I add to my portfolio? You know, and we have we have people coming to us and saying, okay, you know, I actually did well or I did poorly or I did well shorting gold last year when it got to 22,000, 2100, you know, and I want to get rid of my short position and go long now. Interesting. So basically, if I was to summarize it, it's looking like a pretty favorable environment wherever it goes in the interim. It's it's a, you know, investors are liking it and uh, again, just favorable. Now, in terms of what you're seeing, and I want to ask you about silver too, but just in terms of what you're seeing from miners and supply that's coming online, is that fairly steady here or is it declining? You know, what's your sense of supply of gold coming online? Yeah, I think gold mine production over the last, well, I think 2021, we, you know, 2020, we saw a, a, a kind of a weak gold market because of the lockdown. 2021, we saw a little bit of a growth. We saw less growth last year, and we see it basically flat this year. And I, I, I think that has to do with sort of some of the trends in terms of the, the lags that are involved between the time gold mining companies say, let's ramp up production and they actually ramp up production. Our view is that the gold, I mean, and we haven't seen it fall sharply. Uh, we haven't seen it fall. I mean, it was basically flat last year and it's maybe up, going to be up 1% this year. We do think that there's a scope for some decline in mine production over the next several years, uh, but that could easily be offset with higher prices beyond 2023. Okay, meaning more would come on the market. And right. More Okay, gotcha. So now in terms of silver, what are you seeing there? I mean, people have gotten, I mean, speaking of the narrative, I mean, this is what's great about precious metals is there's so much, for lack of a better term, excitement in the air. And <laughs> I mean, silver, I feel like it's 10 years ago where you buy silver and it's going to make you rich forever. I'm hearing this a lot in the last like two or three months. What do you think? Yeah, you know, silver always attracts those kinds of people. And the ones that make the most money in silver are people who have rational expectations, you know. So I've seen it before, you know, the last cycle, you know, silver was, what, $5 in 2005. 
and it went to $50 in 2011 on an intraday basis. And we had clients who had been investors who had been buying silver at $5, $10, and it went to 50 and we said, sell or buy puts. Keep your long position, but buy puts or sell it, take profits, because probably next week you can buy it back at $35. We were wrong. Next week you could buy it back at $32. So you could have like harvested $50 an ounce profit and then you know bought it back $18 cheaper the next week. And we had clients who did that. And then we had other clients who didn't do that. And we said, you know, hey guys, you know, you just you just left a lot on the table. And they said, Yeah, but we're still up from where we were. You know, and it's like, okay. And you know, so and so on the internet said it's going to a hundred or five hundred or seven hundred. So I'm willing to hold it. And you know, you can hold it, but you do a lot better if you manage your investments. That's where we are. I mean, so there'll always be those buyers and holders. You know, I'm actually working on a piece right now talking about silver inventories. And, you know, people see these this data about how much silver is out there in bullion form. And they think, oh, well, this is sort of static. People buy it and they hold it. And a big portion of it is like that. But there's also maybe hundreds of millions of ounces, maybe more than a billion ounces that of those inventories that actually are constantly turning. And people don't realize it because they only see the estimates of the aggregate totals. Uh, but, it, it, you know, that represents more informed, active investors, among other things. Interesting. And we only have a few minutes left here, but very quickly, if you can, where do you see silver in the next while then? Uh, like, what's your outlook? Our outlook is that it probably trades between, say, 22 and and $28 this year, forms a base similar to what we're seeing, expecting to see in gold. And then it could move higher, maybe 50% higher, 2024, 2026, uh, as all of some of those economic things that we were talking about earlier get worse. Right. Like you basically see 2024 as the year that gold and silver could potentially uh, perform better than than we usually see. Right now, that's what we're saying. And that's what we've been saying for several years. We are increasing the probability in, in, in the various scenarios. Our most likely case is that we see a recession in 2024. We see increased political, financial, and economic issues and social issues. You have a U.S. election. You have the ongoing war, Russia in, in Ukraine. So we see 2024 in our most probable scenario as a year where you see higher gold and silver prices because of all of those factors. But we're also saying more, you know, the reality is that a recession could be avoided. You know, it's not monetary policy to focus on, it's fiscal policy. And right now in the United States, you have some really bad things going on that suggest that fiscal policy will throw us into a recession. But something or some set of things could happen and we could actually postpone that recession for some time you know but right now our most likely scenario is that it's probably 2024 okay excellent and as a final question for you 
What is on your mind that you think that, you know, the average gold investor isn't thinking about? Is there anything that kind of stands out in your head that you think, why aren't they talking about this? Can you believe they're not talking about this? Um, I, you know, I'm sure I'll take uh, criticism for this. It's not that people aren't talking about it. It's just that they're saying the wrong things. I think there's just so much distorted analysis, not only by the marketeers, but also by investors and everybody. I think there's just so much confusion as to what's really going on. And, you know, it's the fog of war, but it's also the fog of the economy and it's the fog of financial markets. And I think there's so many people who are acting and speaking based on beliefs as opposed to knowledge. And knowledge is very hard to come by. And, you know, in, in an earlier interview with somebody else, uh, you know, they were asking me what I expected in 2023. And I said, one of the things I think you'll see is that truth will be harder to find and the growth of misinformation and disinformation will probably continue to expand. And it's just the nature of the systems that we've built. Well, this is the reason we bring you on. Jeffrey Christian, managing partner of CPM Group, thank you for joining us. I know you need to go. We'd love to keep you longer here, but thank you for joining us once again on the Northern Miner Podcast. You're welcome. I'll talk to you soon, I hope. Definitely one of our favorites here on the podcast. It's always great to talk to Jeffrey Christian, and he's very generous with his time. Do not forget, AMEBC is happening January 23rd to 26th. Just go to roundup.amebc.com. And also, the Global Mining Symposium is also coming up. Just go to events.northernminer.com. If you want to help out the podcast, you can leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.